0: trend of this morning's praise and worship, and while our study this morning is in Mark chapter 6, feel free to turn there, I I feel the Holy Spirit wants me very much to share something with you. The whole gospel of Mark is basically how to get saved, who Jesus was, what He came to do. We are saved by faith in Him, but what is it that we believe about Him, that He is the Son of God? He is God in flesh appearing, that he died on the cross to pay the penalty my sins deserve. He rose from the dead, and he's coming again. We believe that with all of our hearts. That's what we have faith in. It's not just faith for faith's sake. Alan told us that he had faith in a guru. So the object of your faith is everything. But let's just talk about that for just half a second. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. His blood washes us from all of our sins. Would you agree with that? Okay, then whose righteousness is going to get you into heaven? Yours or His? Ah. When I sin, I feel condemned. Has that ever happened to you? What do I do when I, as a Christian, trip, stumble, fall? Go through a prodigal son experience, well, however you want to label that, there is hope held for us in Scripture, knowing that it is His righteousness that takes me to heaven. It is not my own. It is not your performance that guarantees your salvation. It's His. He's already done it. You and I blow it how often? Uh, how many times? Today. Uh, okay, so we all fall short. Amen. I think that humbles us, but in our humility, we must not embrace the enemy's condemnation. Conviction of sin is not the same as condemnation of the soul. The one drives me to the foot of the cross and fills me again with his holy spirit. Satan's condemnation condemns me, and I feel suicidal, and I, I just try to run as fast as I can in the opposite direction. Here's what John has to say. I love first John. I just, just love it. It says, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet continuously continue to walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. We all trip and stumble, but that's not our lifestyle. Do You understand what I'm saying? We mess up. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son purifies us from how much sin? All sin. You just want to circle the word all. Because the temptation is to believe the lies of the enemy whispered in the ear when we fall short of his perfection that somehow or another we have forfeited our salvation. Or that God no longer loves us and nothing could be further from the truth. God cannot, he cannot possibly love you more than he does right now. And he will never love you less. You have to understand that your identity is who you are in Christ Jesus, it's not your performance. Otherwise, every one of us is condemned. All of us will miss heaven because our performance is less than perfect. It's his performance that gets us into heaven, not our own. Never let the enemy condemn you. Well, Pastor Jim, what happens when I mess up? As a Christian, you just said we're not supposed to be walking in the darkness. Interesting verbiage in the original language that says if you continuously continue to walk in darkness, it's proof that you don't know the light. But that's not your lifestyle. It may be a lifestyle for a season or a day or a month or a year or ten. But prodigals come back home. Apostates never do. Here's what John encourages us with in verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, there are some denominations that claim that. I've always challenged them and said, let me follow you around 24 hours with a yellow legal pad in my hand and I'll mark down every sin you commit. Every single one, just let me, 24 hours, that's all I need to show you that you still fall short the glory of God. But if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, but if we confess our sins, He Is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. How much unrighteousness? Thank you, Jesus. In other words, every sin, every mistake, everything that trips us up throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the month, years, it's washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. What is restored is not your salvation, it's fellowship. Do you understand the difference? Your salvation was never in jeopardy because that was based on Jesus' performance. But what sin does is it causes a breach in fellowship. It's like we are back in our teenage years. God forbid. But we're back in our teenage years. We have a fight with mom and dad. We go upstairs and we slam the door. Now, did the rebellious teenager stop being the child of their parents? No. What was broken? Fellowship. Sin breaks our fellowship with God. It doesn't jeopardize our salvation. But when we sin, when we blow it, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us. That's God's promise, not Pastor Jim's. And purify us from all unrighteousness. How often should you confess? I kind of think you ought to live there. I just think you ought to just stay in that place all the time. It'll keep you humble because we all fall short That's why we receive the grace of God, so we can express the grace of God to each other. He has not treated us according to our sins. We must not treat each other according to our sins either. We all fall short. Our job is to do what? Love each other. The whole Bible. Can I give you the whole Bible in a nutshell? Write this down. This is theologically very important. Love God. Love each other. Okay, that's it's that. Is it really that simple? Yeah, love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love each other because you've received the love of God. We're no longer under condemnation. I love the songs. The whole set this morning just spoke to my heart out of this passage. But John continues in 1 John 1.10. and says, if we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar because he says we've sinned. Yeah, me too. And his word has no place in our hearts. But then he reaffirms that we are indeed the children of God. But my dear children, he's writing to Christians, he's writing to people that are less than perfect, that have tripped, that have stumbled. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, it happens. We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He, not me, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but the sins of the whole world. It's His performance, because ours will always fall short. But don't let Satan condemn you when we do fall short. According to 1 John, just confess it. You know what this confess means? Say the same thing about it God does. You messed up, you sinned, you blew it. It's an old archery term. I couldn't hit the broad side of a barn with an arrow. But it's an old archery term. It simply means you missed the mark. Have you noticed you don't always get a bullseye? Nobody does. Olympic archers don't always get a bullseye. Sometimes we miss the mark, and that's what the Greek word hamartia means. I've fallen short, the perfection of God. Yeah, and what do I do? I confess that to him. I say the same thing about it that he does. Homo oh, I say the same words about it God does. I've fallen short and I, re- I confess it, I receive his forgiveness, and it's onward and upward. I love that. It's all about the, the grace of God. Well, in Mark chapter 6, if you haven't turned there, feel free to turn to Mark 6. Mark is the author of this second gospel, goes without saying. He's a native of Jerusalem, though he is not one of the 12 apostles, uh, the apostles are listed for us uh, in uh, three of the four Gospels, and he is not uh, named among them at all. And the only one missing in Acts one thirteen is Judas Iscariot. Say goodbye to the, suck, the skunk. His mother's name was Mary, we're told in, in Acts chapter 12. And uh, his father is unknown to us. Was he a believer or not? It doesn't say. We, we can't conjecture. Uh, but John Mark isn't named anywhere in the Gospel record, but he is found in the book of Acts. When his uncle, Barnabas, decided to accompany Paul on his first missionary journey. Well, young John Mark wanted to go with him, but bailed out in Perga when things got going south. He turned back for reasons unexplained to us, whether it's fear or doubt or insecurity, I don't know. So on Paul's second missionary journey, he didn't think it was a good idea to bring the young man along again. I mean, he already deserted him once. Well, Barnabas, blood's thicker than water, so Barnabas says, well, I want to take him and you don't want to take him. Well, who's right? Who's wrong? And so they wind up splitting and Paul goes uh, to, to ultimately to Europe on his second missionary trip and Barnabas goes back to Cyprus where he had come from and takes John Mark with him. What's interesting to me is that neither are mentioned again in the book of Acts. Which, I mean, conjecture would say, well, maybe he wasn't in the perfect will of God, but now they got two missionary trips instead of one. So Satan has ultimately lost <laughs> that battle, and I think that's great. But during Paul's later years, he, he commended Mark uh, and asked that he come alongside of him, Colossians 4, Philippians 24. Uh, and he was with Paul shortly before Paul's execution. So apparently, uh, John Mark had matured a lot and become very helpful to uh, not only Paul but Peter in fact Peter refers to John Mark as my son his son in the faith in 1st Peter 5:13 uh, from the earliest days of the church the gospel of mark was seen as the memoirs really of peter so he he's writing them down it, it's the very shortest of the four gospel accounts Matthew mark Luke and John but but his narrative sometimes is vivid, it's, it's poignant, it races along like a racehorse, it moves so quickly. He's writing primarily to a Roman world and an audience, and it's a book more about deeds than words. So it's a book of action. Can I tell you, I like that because if our faith doesn't move us to specific Christian actions, it's not a biblical faith at all. This is a book of action, just as as the outworking of Christ in your life should result in specific and certain actions. This book doesn't contain any long discourse. Very few parables He presents Jesus as servant. And so no genealogy of Jesus is needed either, but the portrait of Christ is indelible. I like that because Jesus said, greatest in the kingdom of heaven must be the servant of all. So, your aspiration this morning in following the footsteps of John Mark is you should strive to become as good a servant as he became. He wasn't that in the beginning. He failed. He failed utterly. He brought disgrace to his uncle and to the missionary trip that Paul had been called to. But he didn't sit around and lick his wounds forever. He apparently got his act together with the Lord, was reconciled to Peter, to Paul, to Barnabas. I love it. In chapter 6, it says, Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Now, uh, verses 1 through 5, Jesus had been in Capernaum, remember, and now he walks 30 miles to his hometown of Nazareth. Uh, You'll remember, Jesus had in the synagogue at Nazareth opened up the book one time to Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, and had the audacity to say this, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. That's you and I. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's where he stopped his quote, right in the middle of the sentence in Isaiah. He didn't continue on past that because in his first coming, he came to show us grace and mercy. He came to die for our sins. He came to pay the penalty that your sins and mine deserved. The next time he comes is when the remainder of the passage is fulfilled And to proclaim the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Interesting to me. Next time he comes in Revelation 19 is to judge the world. But he came the first time to show us love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. And so this is a dispensation, if I can use that term, of grace. Don't carry a lot of theological baggage with that. Am I a dispensationalist? No. No. But this is, if I can borrow the term, a dispensation of grace. We're no longer under the law. Aren't you glad? I mean, think about that. If we were still under the law, whew, every one of us be condemned. You say, well, you don't know me, Pastor Jim. How do you know I'd be condemned? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever eaten shrimp? Show of hands, shrimp, scallops, lobster. You're going to hell. The Jewish dietary law said, you can't eat that stuff. Those are all bottom dwellers, dude. You can't eat that stuff. You can only eat fish that had scales on it. No, you couldn't eat eels. That's okay with me. Couldn't eat rats, rodents, a certain carrion-eating birds. The law served one purpose, and that was to show us our need of God's grace. We all fall short. We all fall short. So the gospel of Mark is here to tell us that Jesus came to serve us by the giving of himself so that he would take upon himself the payment our sins deserved, and we wouldn't have to. It doesn't stop Satan from continuing to condemn you, to beat you with your failures, to tell you that you're not a child of God, or how often do you think he's going to forgive you this? It says in the passages we have read, he has forgiven us all of our sins. All of our sins, all of your sins. And that causes me to walk in humility. I don't know about you because I didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. I don't think any of us did. But that's why it's called grace instead of what you are owed. Jesus had been in Capernaum. He had already set a torch to the haystack, if you will, by quoting Isaiah 61. And then he said, today is this passage fulfilled in your hearing. You know what he just said? I am the Messiah. I'm sure they thought, excuse me, we know you. You're the carpenter. You're the blue-collar laborer. You're nobody special. You're not rabbinically trained. You don't come from a, a line of kings or wealthy people or even priests. They had rejected his testimony still due to the present day. Ironically, today, Nazareth is still under Palestinian control. You can't go there. The hometown of Jesus Christ. Nazareth was the town that Joseph and Mary had settled in, returning from Egypt with the Christ child, according to Matthew chapter 2. It's the place that he had returned to after his baptism, after his temptation. And it was in that very synagogue there. That he had quoted Isaiah 61. You know what is amazing to me? You think about the first century synagogues in verses 1 and 2 here of of Mark 6. It says in Luke's account of this that it was Jesus' habit to go to Sabbath, to go to the synagogue on every Jewish Sabbath, the Saturday, and worship there. Can I tell you this? I know a little bit about what it was like. The, The praise and worship music was not described as rowdy. In fact, the men and the women couldn't even sit together. Had the women over on one side and the men over on the other side. But Jesus went anyway. It wasn't because the services were so lively. It wasn't because the services were so spirit-filled. Or the pastor so charismatic. Or the praise and worship so electrifying. You thought you were at a concert. They didn't go to synagogue. Jesus didn't go to synagogue because the people were friendly. And yet those are all of the reasons today. We church hop. Oh, it's lively over there. Oh, the pastor's so charismatic. Oh, the praise and worship, it's like a concert. They got smoke pots and lasers and all sorts of things. All of the things that we move from church to church from today, Jesus didn't. The disciples didn't. Why do we But you already know the answer to that question, don't you? Because we are fleshly and carnal, and we care more about appearance than content. We care more about charismatic personality and a large church setting because we see that as secular symbols of success, and we don't even care if Jesus is there or not, or if His Word is preached, or if it is faithfully taught to the sheep of God, or if repentance is or contrition, or humility ever come from the pulpit. What the church today prefers to hear is a motivational speech that doesn't make them change. You're okay. I'm okay. We're all okay. And yet the gospel record is that we're not. That's why Jesus came. We need him with all of our heart. The people have already formed their opinion about Jesus, and they don't think he's the Messiah. They think he's just the carpenter. Interesting as the verses go on here, looking at verse 3 here, and they heard him teach, and they were amazed, where'd this man get these things? What What's this wisdom that has been given to him in verse 2? He even does miracles. Well, yeah, you should come to the conclusion he must be the Messiah. He said he was. He quoted Isaiah 61. He's done the miracles that Isaiah said the Messiah would do. I mean, what else does it take for you to believe? Yeah, but I'm, I'm not really attracted to the synagogue, you know, the, praise and worship music not so lively they don't even have an electric guitar they don't have any smoke pots or lasers you think these Le- levitical priests and, and uh, wardens of the synagogue you think they were spirit filled it was as dead a service as any funeral service you've ever been to in your life isn't this verse 3 isn't this the carpenter that's a term of derision it's not a compliment it was seen as a very lowly, blue-collar trade, not highly esteemed. Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters, plural, with us here? In other words, Jesus came from a family of at least seven children. Now, if you come from a Roman Catholic background, you were told, no, she, Mary had Jesus and so she never had any other kids. Really? They're named for us right here. They're also named for you in the Gospel of Luke. They're also named for you in the Gospel of Matthew. So you're either going to have to throw out half of the New Testament or you're going to have to believe Roman Catholic doctrine. Your choice. But here they're, they're mentioned. What isn't mentioned in verse 3 is any mention of Joseph. Hmm. Apparently he was no longer living because in that day and age they would have typically described Jesus as Jesus' son of Joseph. The carpenter. But it says here that Jesus is the carpenter. It says the carpenter, the only one in town. It's like the horseshoer in the, in the middle 1800s in America. You know, okay, he's a blacksmith. What's the big deal? He's nobody special, certainly no Messiah. He's responsible now for his fam- entire family because Joseph seems to have passed from here Matthew 13 also names each one of his brothers and, and sisters. So I encourage you to believe what Scripture has to say about this. Jesus came from a pretty large family. And none of them, except Mary, believed in him. Put yourself in that situation. Do you feel the resentment? Jesus never does nothing wrong. It's always my fault. He never did such goody-two-shoes. I mean, you could just feel the resentment in that family, you know. Now, according to Scripture, do you, I don't know if you come from a big family or not. I came. From, I had three other brothers. And there was a, an established pecking order. We were latchkey children. Both of my parents worked, so we kind of raised ourselves. It was a lot like that novel from a long time ago, *Lord of the Flies*. Yeah, that was my house. <laughs> you know, There's a pecking order then. He's called the carpenter's son, and evidently since Joseph's death, he had carried on the business. He was the, singular, carpenter of Nazareth. But it doesn't mean just a worker of wood. It doesn't mean that he just was a carpenter with a plane in his hand and hammer and chisel. It means The word means to create, to build, to craft. It even applies to art and sculpture. That's interesting. When the term was originally applied to a worker in wood or a builder using wood, then it did refer to somebody who was like our our modern-day carpenters. But it could refer in the first century to anybody who was a craftsman in wood or metal or stone, even of sculpture. Certainly, we know that Jesus worked in wood. But uh, Justin Martyr, one of the early church fathers, spoke of first-century carpenters uh, making plows and yokes, boats... Doors, wouldn't it be interesting if Jesus made Peter's boat, his fishing vessel, wouldn't that be interesting? Doors, frames, etc., wooden bowls, utensils, things like that. All of those things would have been made by Jesus. He may have also worked in stone, may have even helped to build some of the stone synagogues in Galilee, like the one in Capernaum or perhaps Nazareth. As a woodworker under the Roman Empire, they could press any carpenter into service to make crosses for the Roman Empire. Have you ever thought of the possibility that Jesus might have made his own cross? It's inconceivable almost. But carpenters were typically forced to make executionary crosses. How many had he fashioned knowing that he himself would hang on one one day? Voluntarily to pay the sins that you and I were guilty of. And it says here, as Jesus was sharing, and, and the, aren't you just the carpenter? Don't we know your brothers? And it says at the end of verse three, and they took offense at him. I believe they did that for two reasons. First of all, he was claiming to be a Messiah, they didn't want. He came offering forgiveness of sins, but what they wanted was get us out from the heel of the boot of the Roman Empire. They wanted a military deliverer. They wanted a governmental solution. They didn't want to repent of their sins. They didn't even think they were guilty of sins like society today. Oh, We're just pursuing an alternative lifestyle, but the Bible calls it sin. But if they don't call it a sin, they don't feel that they have to deal with it. They don't feel that there is any accountability whatsoever in that. He wasn't the Messiah they were expecting. He wanted a military and a political deliverer, not one who would forgive their sins, because that would involve confession of sin. Have you noticed today nobody wants to confess their sins? Well, I didn't do anything wrong. Those documents just happened to be found in my garage. I don't know how they got there. It's your garage. It's your house. But secondly, they also expected someone of a much higher social standing. Oh, the Messiah. He should be a king. He should have been born in a palace, a wealthy prince, or somebody with a name, a reputation, somebody... Popular, somebody cool, somebody charismatic with a huge fan base and a large social media presence. And Jesus had none of those things. Somebody educated, somebody with a full head of hair, somebody who's handsome. Isaiah 53 said that there was no handsomeness in him, that we should be drawn towards him. He came to identify with the common and the ordinary. That's you and I. His own brothers, his own brothers didn't believe him. Look at verse 4. Jesus said to them, Only in his own hometown, among his own relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. His own brothers didn't think he was anything special certainly not the Messiah, despite all of the miracles that Jesus had done, despite the fact they had grown up with him in the house for 30 years, despite the fact that through his skills as a carpenter, he was providing for the needs of his whole household. And they thought, no, he couldn't possibly be the Messiah because they were expecting a military deliverer too. We don't want to confess our sins, so we don't need a Savior. That's the world that we live in today. Nobody wants to admit that they are sinners. Nobody wants to admit that they are in need of a Savior. So we do the same thing that the people in Nazareth did, only we do it on a nationwide scale. Even his own brothers James and Jude did not believe, although later on they both believed in him as the Messiah and wrote the books that bear their name in the New Testament. Interesting, writing the book of James who's named here, whose name, by the way, is not James. In the original text, it says his name is Iacobos, which is the Greek way of saying Jacob. James' name wasn't James, it was Jacob. Well, how did he get the name James? King James' version of the Bible, 1611? Interesting translation. Jude's name is not Jude either. You know what his name was? In Greek, Judas. That name fell from popularity after the shenanigans of one Judas Iscariot. But the Hebrew way of saying that is Judah. He's from the tribe of Judah. You've heard the analogy, the old adage before, familiarity breeds contempt. Well, that's what you see in Jesus' own family. And I know that Mary thought differently. She treasured up all of these things in his heart from his birth. She knew the miracles he had done. And yet seemed to be unable to convince her own children to put their faith in their older brother, Jesus. And faith is so important. Look at verse 5. He could do, Jesus could do no miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. I mean, the previous chapter showed us the faith of Jairus, the synagogue ruler in Capernaum. He said, Jesus, I know you can heal my daughter. You healed the guy in my own church with the shriveled hand. Would you come and heal my daughter? She's at the point of death. The woman who had the issue of blood back in chapter 5, she, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I know that I can be healed. Faith that Jesus chided his disciples for not having when their boat was being swamped on the Lake of Galilee, twice they flunked. Think about that—they flunked the same test twice. In fact, they did the same thing at the feeding of the five thousand. You'd think after that they would have got the feeding of the four thousand right. Nope. Of course, you and I have never flunked the same test twice, have we? Hmm. What's the opposite of faith? Fear. Fear. Fear of I'm going to have to give up something. Fear of what will happen to me. Fear of public rejection. Maybe my own family will turn their back on me if I become a Christian. Fear. You know, it says when their boat was being swamped, and it's the only gospel that records this, but in John chapter 6, the biggest miracle of all is that when Jesus, you know, said, East to the wind and the waves. John's gospel, it says, instantly the boat appeared at shore. Well, that's a bigger miracle than the quieting of the wind and the waves. Certainly, the disciples should have believed by then, but their faith was still immature. It was growing. Faith for you and I, it's, it's critical. I, I believe that based on this scripture and several others, that faith limits God's ability to work in our lives. But it doesn't limit his ability, period. We, if we lack in faith, oh, I don't believe that God's going to really heal me. I don't, I don't think you should pray for me. I don't think you should anoint me with oil because, I mean, what if nothing, nothing happens? Well, anoint and pray just because we're commanded to in the Gospel of James who says, if any among you be sick, let him be anointed by the elders of the church. Do it just because it said do it. Leave the response to God. But if I don't have any faith, I think it limits God's response, but not Jesus' ability. He could do anything He wants, anytime He wants to. He is God in flesh appearing, but He seems to respond in a very special way to faith, even childlike faith. Faith is tiny as a mustard seed. It concerns me greatly that in Luke 18 and verse 8, Jesus said this to His disciples, when the Son of Man returns which is nearer now than when we first believed, will he find faith on the earth? Or will he find a church that's transient? Will he find a people that are fickle? Will he find many that have fallen away from the faith and said it was because of COVID? 50% of our people left at COVID and never came back. It's not that they went to church somewhere else. They just gave up on God. They just walked away. They just quit. Satan knows if you can keep a person out of church for a, an extended period of time, the chances of them going back are greatly minimized. Satan knows that. So he'll do everything he can to keep you and I out of church. And if we're not using COVID as an excuse, well, the praise and worship isn't as electrifying as I'd like. Well, the, the pastor's not as charismatic as I'd like. Oh, the, the, the heat is not hot enough. It's not cold enough. The chairs aren't comfortable enough. Where's the smoke pots and the lasers? Come on. Shape up, Pastor. And yet, none of these things drew Jesus to the synagogue. What drew him to the synagogue? It's where he wanted to meet God. He didn't come to synagogue for what he could get out of it. He came to synagogue for what he could impart to the people. That's why he quoted Psalm 61. I'm here to save. I'm here to give meaning and purpose and direction and guidance to your life. I'm here to forgive. I'm here to wash you and cleanse you, forgive you, and let you know that you are a child of God and your eternal destiny is secure. Just keep your eyes on me. Your faith may be small. It may fail you from time to time. But understand, I'm the one who has redeemed you of all of your sins. It's not your performance. Thus there is now then no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That's you and I. I'm not perfect. I wish I was for my family's sake, for my children and grandchildren. I am not a perfect man. God uses my failures to to keep me humble, to keep me on my face, to keep me seeking Him. But this I know. I am forgiven. I know that. I know that when I fall short, I don't question my salvation. I, I hate the distance I feel in the relationship, so I want to repent as quick as I can just to restore the fellowship. I don't want to be the rebellious teenager upstairs pouting behind a closed door that I slammed in my parents' face. I want to come downstairs and say, I messed up. I'm so sorry. I was wrong. That's what we do when we come to, to God in humility. The fellowship is restored again. The love, the grace, the mercy that we once touched when we touched the hem of His garment are restored to us in full measure because the world is a cold and dark and lonely place. Have you noticed? The world has no hope, and you and I don't feel comfortable long-term in that situation. We're children of the light. We do best when we're living in the light. When we gather together, iron sharpens iron, Scripture says. When we get together, good things happen. Jesus said, all it takes is two or more of you, and there I am in the midst of you. didn't have to be a big church. Just a couple of you huddled together in a living room would be just fine. Jesus wants to meet with His people so desperately. If you came to church and you haven't met Jesus yet this morning, don't leave before you do. Don't come for for the teaching or the music or the Sunday school. Come to meet with Jesus. He loves you so much, so very, very much. And the disciples had to learn that lesson. It brings to mind as well in verse 4, how do you handle rejection? Hmm. As far back on my mom and dad's side of the family as anybody could go, I was the first Christian I was plucked right out of the sewer. My mom and dad were proud of the fact that they were had come from a long and distinguished line of sinning pagans. And then God reached out and saved me. Amen. He's been saving people before and, and since because of his grace and his love and his, his mercy. It's his nature to love. But only in his hometown, amongst his relatives, in his house, is a prophet without honor. If I had let the fear of rejection in my family keep me from the throne of grace, I'd have never gotten saved. I got got saved, and it was a very lonely existence for a long time. And I went to church, and I learned, and I grew. And you know what? I saw God, one by one, start saving people in my family. And he did it in radical ways. My kid brother called me one time and he, he says, I'm at Memorial ER and I got a knife in my chest. I got in a bar fight. So I went down there just as the doc was coming and he says, yeah, it's stuck right there in your sternum. A quarter inch to, to the left and it had gone right through your heart and you'd be a dead man. So he says, this is really going to hurt. And he took the knife and I pulled it. <laughs> yeah. And I said, Jan, God has spared you. To save you. He's given you a second chance. You've rejected him all of your life, and whatever you've been pursuing, it obviously isn't working. Look at the knife that came out of your chest. Is what you're doing working for you? That's a simple question you can ask anybody. Is what you're doing working for you? Hey, how's that alcoholism working out? Hey, how's that drug dealing doing? Is that working for you? Are you happy? Are you contented? Are you fulfilled? thousand other sins could be added to the list. Because I can tell you that Satan pays miserable wages. He doesn't care about your happiness. He wants to dangle a carrot in front of you, hoping that you're dumber than a donkey. And we'll go for it. And we find ourselves in sin only to realize it doesn't satisfy. It doesn't satisfy. We, we all have a testimony of what we've been saved from. And we won't glorify our past. We'll glorify the God who saved us from our past and has a glorious future waiting for us. I think that is an unbelievable privilege. It wasn't that Jesus couldn't do any miracles there. He wouldn't because of the lack of faith. And that's what he notes there in verse 6. I wish that he could look inside your heart and mine and say, they got faith. They may be as small as a grain of mustard seed, but they got faith they're standing on bank promises. They don't have all the answers. Yeah, they mess up, they trip and stumble like everybody else, but they got faith. It's your faith in mind that puts a smile on the face of God. Exercise your faith. What is faith? It is simply believing that he is able to do anything. That he is able to intercede. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We're told in Hebrews Oh, how important faith is. So while yours may be small, faith comes by hearing, and hearing how? By the Word of God. What should you do? Read it. Heed it. Are there any questions? Pretty simple stuff, isn't it? Being a spirit-filled on fire Christian is not difficult. It's not hard. You don't need a theological degree. You don't need to go to Bible college or seminary. Read it and heed it. Isn't it interesting that Jesus said, whoever reads the prophecies of the book of Revelation, He said, just read it. You don't have to understand it all. If you just read it, I'll bless you. Read the book. Read the book. Don't add to it. Don't subtract from it. The book's the only one you need. I get asked all the time, well, Pastor Jim, I'm growing my library. Sounds prideful up front. Bad start. Adding to my library, which books would you recommend that I should read first? I said, well, i got 66 books that you should master first. And after you have mastered these 66, then I'll recommend another one. Have you mastered these 66 books yet, New and Old Testament? You don't need anything else yet. This is the Word of God. And everything else you're going to have to strain. You're going to have to sift the good from the bad. And if you don't have a very powerful gift of discernment, you could be led astray. You want to be careful of that. It goes on to say, then, uh, then Jesus went around teaching, at the end of verse 6, then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the 12, his apostles, to him. He sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. You reckon that was a little intimidating? They had been watching Jesus for a long time. Now, Jesus is saying, now I want you to go out and do what I've been doing. I want you to pray for people. I want you to anoint people. I want you to heal those that are sick. I want you to cast out demons. Understand that this is not because they went to demon casting school. That's not what happened. They're they're not academically qualified to do this now, but they've been with Jesus. This is delegated authority. Jesus gave it to them to do what he asked them to do. All authority that you and I exercise as Christians is not automatic. It is delegated, delegated to be used how and when and where. He determines. Let him guide you by the power of his Holy Spirit and the word that is before you. But you've got to let him guide this thing or you're going to wind up with egg on your face. You'll remember one time and when Jesus and, and three of his disciples were coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. Man, wow, don't you wish you were there? Wouldn't that have been the coolest thing in the whole world? They came down and they find a guy who's got a demon-possessed kid, and the demon keeps throwing the kid into the fire to kill the kid. And the guy had asked Jesus' other disciples, would you cast the demon out? And it said they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. Why? Why? Because power and authority is delegated to be used by God according to His purposes when and where and how. Don't take it for granted. Don't say, oh, I don't need to pray about this. Just eat dominus vobiscum, eat your biscuits, come out. <laughs> it's not exactly the way that works. You don't want to get into a demon uh, setting free ministry Unless you know that that is exactly what God has called you to. And he opens doors that no man can open and close doors. He didn't want you walking through. But don't just assume. The disciples did that, wound up with a lot of egg on their face, and came to Jesus afterwards. And Jesus chided him. He said, how long do I got to put up with you guys? You've been with me for years now, and you just assume you can just do X, Y, and Z, and it's all good? You've got to pray about these. This kind only comes out with prayer and fasting got to do a little spiritual homework. You've got to put yourself in a place where God can use you and wants to use you and then empowers you and then sets the stage and then says, Sick him. and you do it. But you don't want to presume. We anoint with oil in the hopes that God will heal, and sometimes He does. But He's not a puppet on a string because I anoint. He's under no compunction. He's got to heal. That's not the way that works. I don't care what the faith healers tell you. A friend of mine one time was a roadie setting up for one of the great concert venues in Colorado Springs, and a famous name-it-and-claim-it healer came to town and approached the roadies. My pastor friend was one of them. He was bivocational at the time, and the guy came up to him and says, how'd you like to make a hundred bucks? My friend Tommy says, sure. Yeah, what do I got to do? And he says, well, he says, we're going to bring some people here in the back of of the, uh, the theater here, and I want you to put them in wheelchairs and wheel them down front. And we're going to pick them up, and we're going to push them over backwards, and they're going to be healed. Tommy said, well, there's nothing wrong with them. The guy said, yeah, I know, but do you want the 100 bucks or not? If that's faith healing, I want to walk away from it at the speed of light. I want to put on my Nikes and run as far from that fraud as I possibly can. you got to let God be God. Another friend of mine who pastored a very large church uh, up in Denver, up in Thornton, uh, Tom Stipe, one time he had split with John Wimber and uh, went with the vineyards when vineyards were splitting off of Calvary chapels, and, uh, and Mr. Wimber had gone to my pastor, Chuck Smith, and said, you know, I feel that we're called to follow after the things of the Spirit. And Chuck said, well, we're a word-centered church, so it's not the word versus the Spirit. We're, it's a word-centered church that Calvary chapels are, and they split ways over that amicably. But Tom Stipe told me one time, he says, yeah, we, we started up a Signs, Wonders, and miracle tour, which worked out really well until the first time the Holy Spirit didn't show up. And he said, we felt as stupid as stupid can be. we had been promoting and advertising, oh, we're having a sensational Signs, Wonders, and Miracles tour. Like it's automatic. What do we need with Jesus? We've got our plans, our programs, our 10-step issues. we got our 12-step programs. What do we need Jesus for? Jesus said, apart from me, you can do what? Yeah, don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that. He is Lord. He wants to be Lord of every moment, not just, he's not a genie in a bottle. We rub the bottle in and he does what we want him to do. That's not the way this thing works. Prayer puts us, It does, prayer does not tell God, what we want Him to do for us. Prayer is aligning our will with His. It's an instantaneous, momentary thing. You just got to let God be God. But inquire of Him. Oh, inquire of Him to be sure. But don't assume because He did it one way in the past, He's going to do it that same way in the future. Let God be God. Keeps you on your toes. Keeps you in the Word. Keeps you in prayer. And all of that stuff is wonderful. These were his instructions Verse eight: take nothing with you as I'm sending you out two by two. Take nothing (laughs) with you for the journey except a staff, a walking stick. Don't take any bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but don't don't even take an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. You don't mock and you don't rail. You don't have to get all uppity about it. But Jesus said, I'm going to send you out as a missionary. Don't take anything with you. Don't hawk for money. Don't go from church to church. Don't put a thermometer on the wall. It says, hey, when we get the thermometer all the way atop, then we'll send out our missionaries. Jesus said, go out by faith. Trust God to provide. Many, many years ago now, there was a missionary that came and saw me uh, in my office. And and he said, hi, I'm so-and-so and such-and-such, and such and and i am called to be a missionary to this particular uh, people group over in, in, in the Southeast Asia. And I said, well, that's great. And I said, what, what's your goal? And he said, well, I'm trying to raise uh, $36,000 a year uh, to be a missionary over there. And so while he was there, I pulled up on my computer what the, um, the average per capita income was in that particular country that he was going to. And they averaged about $1,600 a year. But he wanted $36,000 a year to go there. And when I pointed that fact out to him, I said, you know, this kind of doesn't line up with scriptural example here. This is go and God will provide. You know what he said? You don't expect me to live like them, do you? That's not a missionary. That's a hireling. How different than how we send out missionaries today. Verse 8 looks nothing like our missionary sending agencies as a general rule today. I remember Pastor Chuck told me a story one time. uh, When he was going to Life Bible College, there was this 80-year-old woman who was in class with him at Life Bible College there before it became Biola, the Bible Institute of Los Angeles. And there was this 80-year-old woman there, and and Chuck sat next to her in class, and he said, well, what are you going to do when you get out of Bible College? She said, well, that's easy. I'm going to be a missionary in India. And he goes, Well, who's your missionary sending agency? And she goes, I don't have one. And Chuck said, Well, how do you think you're going to get there? And how are you going to survive once you do? And she goes, Well, that's easy. I'm going to sell my house and I'm going to sell my car to buy an airplane ticket over there and believe that God's going to provide. Amen. She said, I went to every missionary sending agency there was. They don't want 80 year olds on the mission field. <laughs> Tell it to Mother Teresa. <laughs> and she went. And she died over there ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ to the different caste systems in India. Nothing was going to stop her, not the lack of money. She said, God will provide. In fact, isn't one of God's compound names in the Old Testament Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides? That's what his name is. And I have found it to be true how many times he has provided for me personally. We could have testimony after testimony of how God has provided for us in ways that we, we never believed possible. I've been at times in my family without food because God had called us to go to seminary and went out to California, sold everything I had here. Went out there with nothing but one semester's worth of tuition in a three-year master's degree program. And how was I going to pay for it? I had no idea. They asked me how I was going to pay for it, and I said, I have no idea. Uh, but I, I got enough money for one semester of school, and I know that beyond a faintest shadow of a doubt that, that God's going to provide. It's easy to say that. but Have you ever been in that position when Jesus said, go and sell all that you have and come and follow me? Have you ever done that? Oh, it's easy to say, well, sure, I would do it. But have you ever done that? That's what Jesus is asking of his disciples here. It's not that he's called every one of us to be penniless. Don't miss the point. He's called every one of us to be completely dependent upon his resources. Whether rich or poor is irrelevant. But do you depend on him to provide, to open up doors of opportunity that you can't? To take you places where the world says, well, you can't go there. You're too young. You're too old. You're not qualified enough. You don't have your master's degree. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But that takes a man or woman of faith. Do actually put that into practice, but don't ever let the the enemy or the world stop you from doing what God has called you to. Yours is to trust in the promises of God. I can do all things through God who gives me strength. They didn't balk. It says in verse 12, they went out and preached that people should what? Verse 12, Mark 6, repent. That's the toughest thing in the world for a pagan to do. it. It requires humility. In fact, maybe you struggle with the issue of repentance. What's repent means? Literally, in the original language, do a 180. You're headed the way of the world and the way of the flesh and the way of Satan. Do a 180. You were headed away from God, Head to God. Trust in Him. That, that, that's really what it means in its essence. But it, what is implied is the sense of humility. Humility is required because you've got to be humble before you even admit you're going the wrong way. I've gotten away from you, Lord, and I didn't want to, didn't mean to. So, repentance is certainly necessary for the unbeliever to get saved, but it is a a lifestyle that the Christian needs to adopt because we all still fall short. Lord, I repent. It's a change of heart, it's a change of mind, it's a change of attitude. It's a realization of what I've been doing, it's not working. It's just not working. I just wanted to throw that out to you this morning. If you are not happy, you're doing something wrong. You're not where God wants you to be. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Is that you? That's God's will for you. That's what He has for you. But if we don't choose to do it His way, we forfeit those things. He so desperately wants you contented. Happy, spirit filled, full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. You know the list. But we settle for so little. So we read when it's convenient. We go to church if there's nothing else stopping us or there's not a compelling sports game on TV. And we wonder why I'm just not walking in the power that I'm supposed to be according to Scripture. How come? What's wrong? Well, there's something wrong. Where'd you walk? Could it be improved? Is there any room for improvement in your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ? Any room for improvement? If there is, then pursue that. Again, this, it's just not rocket science. But it does require your active participation. It requires you earnestly seeking Him. God told Jeremiah, if you guys earnestly seek me, I will be found by you. But sometimes we let our flesh or the world get in the way. But look at what God did through these guys. Verse 12, they went out and preached that people should repent, change, confess their sins. They drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. (laughs) But King Herod heard about this. For Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work within him. This is King Herod, who's the son of Herod the Great. He's not really a king. He's a tetrarch is his official Roman name, but he likes to be called king. He likes to be called sir. He likes to be called mister. He likes to have titles in front of his name or initials after his name. I found one of the most humorous things in the whole world when you talk about academic degrees. You know, you start off with an associate's degree, associate's of applied science or whatever else, that's your AAS degree or, or associate's in business, and then after that, it's your, if it's your science degree, uh, if it's a bachelor of arts degree, if it's a science degree, they call it BS. I think it's appropriate. After that, you know, you've got master's degree, program, MBA. So lots of guys like to pile up the initials after their names. What is that? Pride. Well, don't you know who I am? Don't you know where I've been? Don't you know my academic credentials? Don't you know how many initials I have after my name? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Don't try to impress men with who you are. Try to impress God with who you are. You're a child of God. Act like it. Act like it. He is Lord and Lord of all. King Herod had forgotten these basic lessons in humility, but he is a very superstitious man, and so he's asking around the court, who is this guy named Jesus? Well, maybe he's John the Baptist. Come back to dead because he had John the Baptist killed. Others said, he's Elijah, still others claimed, oh, he's one of the prophets, like the prophets of old. When Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded has been raised from the dead. Very superstitious man, because he felt guilty for having killed the prophet. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested and had him bound and put in prison. he did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. He stole his brother's wife. Really? Really? whom he had married, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you, according to Levitical law, to have your brother's wife. You you can't do this. Now, John did this at his own peril. He knew it's not popular to tell top-level politicians that they're in sin. It's not a good career choice. Verse 19, so Herodias nursed a grudge against John. Boy, there are some people that hate being confronted with the fact that they've sinned. Or what they're doing is immoral. Have you ever wondered why the world is so angry? Because you stand for righteousness, and they stand for sin, and they hate you reminding them of that. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John, wanted to kill him, but she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, not uh, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard uh, John, he was greatly puzzled, and yet he liked to listen to him. He's curious but not interested in repenting. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials, military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced lasciviously, scantily clad, she pleased Herod, drunken Herod, and his drunken dinner guest. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath. Whatever you ask, I'll give it to you, even up to half of my kingdom. Now, that's a typical way of pretending generosity. Uh, Nobody ever took this at face value. No, Herod's not going to give up half his kingdom to anybody. So she went out and asked her mother, Mother, what shall I ask for, the head of John the Baptist? She answered, at once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed because of his oaths. And his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her, so he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This really was a blow to Jesus because it appears from the gospel account that Jesus and John the Baptist were first cousins. They were only separated by six months apart in age, and Mary and Elizabeth were relatives, the scriptural account tells us. So this is a personal blow to Jesus, and at this point the other gospels tell us that he secluded himself with his disciples as a place to get away from the crowds and and just grieve for a while. It's not that grieving is sinful. It is not, but we're told in Scripture, do not grieve as those who have no hope. Herod has chosen not to repent. Herodias, Salome, the lascivious daughter who's done the dance of the seven veils in front of drunken guests, has not chosen to repent. But Romans 10, 9 and 10 tells us this, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead you will be saved but a lot of people choose not to do that a lot of people in the world right at this present time for it is with your heart that you believe paul continues and are justified it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved confess jesus Confess your sins to Him. Confess Him as the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who came to pay the price our sins deserved. Confess Him. Repent of those sins. Our message is Jesus, and there is no other message. Our message as a church is not to invite pagans to church. Goats don't feel at home in a gathering of sheep. You hear what I'm saying? Get them saved first. Well, that's your job, Pastor Jim. Who told you that lie? Who told you that lie? In fact, Ephesians 4 says this, it was he, Jesus, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, that's me, to do what? To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Jesus sent his disciples out because evangelism was their job, not his. He was equipping them. That's what he did in sending them out. You see, I mean, there's scads of you guys. There's only one of me. I can't lead all of Colorado Springs to faith in Jesus Christ. You know people that I will never meet this side of glory. That's your mission field. That's your mission field. The people that you work with, the people that you go to school with. That's your mission field. Start by praying for them. Make one of them your pet project. I mean, think of the unparalleled opportunities you have. Sometimes you're stuck in a very small cubicle with people for an extended period of time. Insert Jesus into the conversation. Maybe you're stuck in an airline or cockpit (laughs) for the next 14 hours of a flight. Great. Tell somebody about Jesus. Tell them what Jesus has done for you. Whatever you do for a living, that's your mission field. That's, it's not who you are, it's what you do. That's not who you are. You are there to share your faith in Jesus Christ, to offer hope to a world that has none. That's why God put you there, because you're in places I can't get to. You know people I don't know. Just tell them what Jesus has done for you. Isn't that what Jesus told Legion to do in the previous chapter? Legion, I'm going to leave you here, but you go tell your friends and family all that God has done for you. That's our testimony. You don't have to be Billy Graham. Just tell people what God has done for you. But if you don't bring Jesus into the conversation, they will assume you're a pagan just like them. You know what I'm saying? If you don't want to be thought a pagan, act and talk like a Christian. Then they'll know there's a fundamental difference. They may hate you for it, but if you're not different from them... You're doing a belly flop in the world of personal missions and evangelism. My job is to equip you with the, for the work of the ministry. Your job, your ministry begins as soon as you walk out these doors. The people that you know, pray for. Pray for. They, they need the Lord so, so desperately. How do we respond to criticism? I want to do it like Jesus did. In the opening six verses of of this chapter, I understand that Satan is alive and well, and he will deter people from coming to faith because humility is required. And then we learn that Jesus, in the sending out of the 12, you know what he's doing? He's kicking his birds out of the nest. I looked that up and found out there's a whole wide variety of birds that actually kick their young ones out of the nest, whether the young ones feel that they're ready for it or not. My dad must have taken that education up somewhere because when I turned 17, the day I graduated from high school, he gave me a one-way airline ticket from Germany to New York City and said, your bags are already packed. See ya. Don't call us. We'll call you. What was bad dad doing? Kicking the bird out of the nest. That's what Jesus is doing here. You guys have been watching me for a long time. It's your turn it's your turn now. You have been watching me for a long time, about 35 years. Now it's time to do what? Kick you out of the nest and let you go out there and stretch your wings out and share your faith and give glory to God. It's time for you to do that. Regardless of your age, There is a clarion call. The trumpet is sounding. Christ is coming back soon. And if we're not going to tell him about Jesus now, when do you think it'd be a good time? People need the Lord. That song sticks with me. People need the Lord. And then when I see in that closing portion that we covered this morning, looking at John the Baptist, There is a cost of discipleship. It costs John his life. It probably won't cost you yours, but it may cost you your friends, your acquaintances, your your own family, perhaps. I was absolutely and totally rejected by my family when I became a Christian. Totally and absolutely rejected. I called up everybody I knew the day I got saved, and I said, this for me. Save me from my sins. My, I, when I called my grandma in New York from Oklahoma City, where I'd gotten saved, she said, Jimmy, saved. Are you in jail again? Do you need me to send you money? No, 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 no. That's not what I need being saved from. I was saved from my sins. I just asked Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. and Man, the lights came on. The burden was lifted. Man, I got meaning and purpose and direction in my life. And I'm so giddy happy. I'm, I got to go tell everybody. And I did. I had no idea what I was doing or saying. I had right or wrong. I don't know. All I knew was that God had touched me. I was like that woman on her knees who just said, man, if I just touch his hem of his garment, I'm going to be changed. And I was changed. That was my testimony. And everybody looked at me like a a deer looks at oncoming car headlights. That was me. The world may not be able to explain what happened to you, but you can tell them I got Jesus. I got Jesus. Let's stand and close in prayer, shall we? You're my Lord, my God, and my Savior. I still stumble. I still fall. I trip up so many times. But I'm saved by grace. I'm kept by grace. Your blood has washed away all of my sins. Past, present, and future, and all eternity won't be nearly long enough for me to say, thank you, Lord Jesus. Father, there's people in this room I know that just need a touch from you. We're like the one with the issue of blood that just need to touch the hem of your garment. We're, we're like Jairus. We got health issues. We got loved ones that, that need a touch from you, Lord. We have so much in common with them. Maybe we're like Legion and his lifestyle sure wasn't working for him. And he was ostracized by everybody and you touched him. You remind us of the value of one person. Each of us is an individual standing before you this morning. And each of us is here with hands raised and hearts open wide saying, Lord, touch me. Heal me. Move in me and on me and then through me, Lord, so I can touch those around me and give them the hope that you have given me. You're the God of all comfort. It was given to us so that we can comfort others in their time of need. So we commit ourselves into your hands. In Jesus' name.